This week on Punch Mountain. Bruce Lee proves why he's still a legend after all these years, but tell me more about this Jim Kelly and John Saxon. Don't smash those mirrors, you might curse your family. Because we're watching Enter the Dragon, Punch Mountain starts now. Hello and welcome to Punch Mountain, the podcast where we review action movies one by one to discover the definitive ranking of action movies. Not determined by us, but by the action gods themselves. We don't make the mountain, we just climb it. My name is Mac Blake, and I'm joined, as always, by the action Sherpa himself. Enter the grizzly bear, Mr. David Hada. David Hada, how you doing? If you gotta be a bear, be a grizzly. I'm doing quite well, Mac Blake. How are you doing? I am also doing good. Uh, I feel especially good, David, because we watched, for the second episode in a row, a really good movie. Yes, we watched Enter the Dragon from 1973, starring Bruce Lee. This will be Bruce Lee's first appearance on the mountain. Man, oh man, I cannot wait to talk about this because I have a lot of good things to say about this movie, and uh, those usually end up being fun episodes. So opening thoughts, Mac. Blake, let's get into Enter the Dragon. What are your opening thoughts on it? Enter my thoughts. I saw this movie a bunch on TV growing up, but like, you know, one of those things where you catch it on TV 15 minutes after it started, so I've never seen the beginning of it. And now that I know why he was on the island, it doesn't make it more <laughs> enjoyable. And by he, I mean Bruce Lee playing, of course, the uh, the character Lee. What a stretch. But all I remember about this movie is I remember the final fight, and I remember that it was close to Bruce Lee's death. What I did not remember, though, is this movie actually came out after he died, which, uh, wow. I mean, that's uh, bittersweet, I guess. But I something I did not remember about this movie is that it had kind of a spy angle, which we'll definitely talk about more later. What about you, David? Have you seen this movie before? You know, yes and no. I'll say that. I'm the, I'm the same as you. It was on Channel 26 when I was a kid every Saturday and Sunday. I feel like Saturday mornings on Channel 26 were either John Wayne movies, Tarzan movies, or this movie. And my dad liked watching all three of those. And so as a kid, I was like, I'd rather be watching cartoons. So whatever my dad liked, I instantly hated. So this was kind of one of those movies I just sort of compartmentalized as as forgettable, I suppose. And then you get to college and it's one of the favorite movies of a lot of undesirable people. It's this <laughs> and it's swingers and it's fight club. So I was like, you know, I'm good. I'm good on on Enter the Dragon. But watching it for the show, thank God for this show for allowing me a chance to revisit stuff like this. This movie kind of rules. This movie really is, you know, this is going to sound maybe too hyperbolic. But this is the perfect mix of art and commerce. It is a showcase for Bruce Lee. It is an introduction for a lot of people. I imagine an entire generation of kids, an introduction to martial arts for them. But it's also a movie designed to put butts in the seats. Like they knew what they were doing when they said, okay, we'll get an Asian guy. We'll get a black guy. We'll get a white guy. We'll appeal to every international market. And this will be a hit. And you look at the numbers. This thing was a colossal hit. It should be. It's a classic. I'm, I'm excited to gush over this movie. But I will also say I need to apologize to this movie because my strongest memories of this movie are not of this actual movie. They're of the Kentucky Fried movie and the segment of that called A Fistful of Yen, which was the Enter the Dragon parody. Mac, did you see or have you seen the Kentucky Fried movie? Yes, David. And I got to say you're not alone because I also conflated the two. (laughs) At the end of the movie, the villain has sort of an interchangeable hand that Mm -hmm. he changes out with weapons. And I was like, oh, he's definitely going to pull out a flamethrower at some point. David, that was not in this movie. That happened in the Kentucky Fried movie. Did did you (laughs) also do this? I did. Credit to the Kentucky Fried movie. Very few parodies are this spot on. 
where they were able to lift entire lines. They were able to lift entire scenes from the movie. You know, at some point, Han says, uh, you have our gratitude. And I remember that being a recurring line in the Kentucky Fried movie. I also conflated Han's claw or Han's hand with a moment in the Kentucky Fried movie where he's pleasuring a lady and he has a device on his hand. Uh, that did not happen in this movie. <laughs> oh, um, my goodness. But uh, but yeah, I, I do apologize. I might mention the Kentucky Fried movie a few more times since it is a major influence on my life. But uh, I'm also looking forward to leaving that in the rear view. <laughs> Yeah, when's the last time you saw that movie? Because I imagine it is uh, super problematic, probably. Oh, it's crazy problematic. The last time I saw it, as a matter of fact, was 2018 in San Francisco. They did a screening at the Castro Theater with John Landis in attendance. And thankfully, uh, how do I do this? Thankfully, nobody got (laughs) upset because I don't think John Landis wanted to see somebody else lose their head. But, oh uh, my goodness. <laughs> I knew that. I knew as soon as you smiled, I was like, here comes a, either some sort of helicopter joke or a decapitation <laughs> joke. But no, super problematic, really offensive and insulting, but God damn it, it's so charming. I, I still love it. Yeah, I'll have, to, I'll have to rewatch it one of these days in secret. But yeah, I also think this movie rules and watching it again did not change that opinion. But David, before we go any further, I think it would help to clear up some common questions. If you search Enter the Dragon on Google, The results include these frequently asked questions, six of them this time, showed up in the People Also Ask section. And since people are asking, David, let's do some quickly provided answers. Mr. Hada, why is Enter the Dragon so famous? Three words, shirtless Bruce Lee. Mac, did Chuck Norris play in Enter the Dragon? No, David, he of course famously played on the album Unleash the Dragon by Cisco. David, why is Enter the Dragon rated R? Because Bolo Young shows full dong. Mac, is Enter the Dragon the best Bruce Lee movie? I don't know, David, I have a rare copy of his sex tape, and I gotta say, A+. Did Bruce Lee ever fight Chuck Norris? I'm sure it was in one of those versions of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Mac, did Bruce Lee train Chuck Norris? He did, but Chuck Norris still occasionally pisses all over the fucking sofa. Fuck you, Chuck Norris. Before we sail off to a private island at the behest of British intelligence to fight in a martial arts tournament hosted by an international sex and drug trafficker, let's check in with two friends who think eating at a boat-shaped restaurant is enough adventure for us. Thank you very much. It's a friendship check-in. We're those friends. How are you, David Hada? What was the last boat-shaped restaurant you ate at? Oh, there's one in like I-35, uh, right in the middle of, of Austin. Just, you know, like North Central. And it's definitely shaped like a boat. And I went there and ate uh, a bunch of fried stuff. It doesn't matter what's inside the fried shit. It all tastes the same. Good. Honestly, you could have a restaurant called House of Fried and I would eat there every week. Yeah, why are we trying to come up with clever names? Give the people what they fucking want. I'm doing all right, Mac Blake. Thank you so much for asking. I don't have a lot to contribute. It's been kind of a quick week. It blew by very fast. In fact, the highlight of my week has been discovering that there is a Cake Boss channel on Pluto. It's Cake Boss 24 hours a day. And I say this because I don't happen to like Cake Boss. And I started watching the channel to see if that was accurate, to see if it was just me being shitty 10 years ago or 15 years ago and be like, I don't like Cake Boss, man. But I'm watching it. <laughs> and, and I'm watching it with, with my girlfriend, The Bombshell, who does not know a thing about Cake Boss. And I look over at her and I was like, did you ever watch Ace of Cakes? And she's like, I don't even know what that is. And I said, let me find some Ace of Cakes. And sure enough, I found the Ace of Cakes instead. It was on Hulu. We watched that instead. Man, Mac, I cannot believe I have thoughts about both shows to where I would go on a a podcast and talk about my love of Ace of Cakes, but it's night and day. Ace of Cakes is just a bunch of pals, a bunch of like art school grads who decided to make cakes and Mm -hmm. Cake Boss feels like a mob front. And it's such a grating show, but I'm so glad for the counterbalance, the, the yang 
of Ace of Cakes to the Yin of Cake Boss. This should tell you how little I had going on this week. Is <laughs> I've just gone on for two and a half minutes about the Ace of Cakes, but I do love it very much. So Ace of Cakes, is that like Motorhead themed? I think that was why I was turned off to it at first. I was really hoping there would be more Lemmy in it. But no, it's just some dude from Baltimore who wanted to make some cakes. And he's the ace. And he's he's the ace. Is there a, like a king, queen, and or jack of cakes? There is not. Although I think jack of cakes might be on a different channel entirely. But um, No, you're, you're thinking of jack off cakes, David. There's an extra F. I miss websites. They still got them. They still make them. Where can I find a good cake for it, Mac? <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. That's the second time this week someone's referenced cake farts. The other one being, of course, my feral wife. <laughs> so how are you, my friend? And, and if it involves cake farts, please go ahead. I want to give a shout out to um, my feral wife for a devastating burn on, on yours truly. She, I forget what it was. She tweeted at one time that whenever she enters a room, she can't tell whether a ghost has been there or I have been there because I leave cupboards open, <laughs> like cupboard doors. I forget to close them. And the reason why I say it's a, and I'm, of course I'm butchering it. I should have looked it up. But the reason I say devastating burn is every time I open a cupboard and that's open for more than a second, I think about it. It's like, mm-hmm. as the kids say, in my head rent free. So the fact that a, uh, a joke has gotten me to change my behavior, that's devastation. Oh yeah. When you feel seen in such a way that you're like, I've got to change what I'm doing. I never want to experience that level of burn again. So I will change the, yeah, no, that's congratulations for a wife. You did it. I was like, let me just open this uh, cupboard real quick to grab a glass. Oh, the emperor has no clothes. I'll just <laughs> close this. That doesn't, that feels too real. Speaking of real, David, is it time we journey to a private island that's just barely within British jurisdiction in, in the uh, 1970s? Mac, put on your prosthetic claw with a little bit of fur on it. We're going in. That was a weird claw. David, <laughs> in case someone has never seen Enter the Dragon, or if they have, uh, it's been a minute, or if they're wholly unfamiliar with it. David, can you give the back of the box description just a level set? You bet I will, and I'll tell you right now, this is an older box, so it's a longer description. The legendary Bruce Lee, unknown in 1971. David, do you want me to fact check this immediately, or do we want to, <laughs> should I just hold it? Because already, completely wrong. He was on the Green Hornet show, right, in the mid to late 60s? Yes, that's right. He was, he yeah. was Kato in the, in the very popular Green Hornet series. Yeah, millions of people watched that show because they didn't have any other fucking chance because there's three channels back you know what i'm just gonna <laughs> shut the fuck up read the rest of this i i already hate it these schmucks don't know two years later an international cult hero and star of the most popular martial arts epic ever filmed enter the dragon enter the dragon takes lee to the island fortress of a criminal warlord whose martial arts academy covers up opium smuggling and prostitution activities Determined to avenge the death of his sister, Lee infiltrates the enemy's stronghold and enters the most brutal martial arts tournament. Then follows a spectacular visual feast of competitions combining <laughs> skills in karate, judo, taekwondo, tai chi chuan, and hapkido. I guess it's not like they fucking. <laughs> I'm sorry. Please keep going. It's just I, I'm. You know what? This is a good back of the box because I had no fucking clue we we saw those skills on screen. This was not Street Fighter. There was not a specialist in every one of these things. It was just an assortment of dudes. I wish I was like an MMA boyfriend watching Enter the Dragon so I could turn to my girlfriend and be like, that's Hapkido. Lee staged these sequences himself, demonstrating exquisite mastery of film rhythm and dramatic timing. Indeed, his own performance as actor and fighter showcases all the qualities that have kept his reputation alive since his untimely 1973 death. Thanks. 
<laughs> in action, he moves with the speed and confidence of a cat swatting its string. Even in repose, his understated presence is magnetic. The martial arts enthusiasm he helped inspire still endures, and his films constitute a crowd-pleasing legacy. Enter the Dragon is the ultimate high in that legacy. 1973, 102 minutes, directed by Robert Klaus, rated R. Does every movie where the star is dead have to talk about it? Like, if you flip over the back of Dark Knight, does it mention Heath Ledger is dead? I think if it was old enough, I think if if the Dark Knight had come out in the late 70s, early 80s, they would have padded the back of the box with that. Like, feast your eyes on the performance of the now dead Heath Ledger, killed by pills. Like, they would just oh my go God. too hard with it. I guess the bigger question is, does the back of the crow mention, Not to, I'm not trying to be, uh, you know, um, morbid here, but honestly, does the back of the crow box mention uh, Brandon Lee's death? I truly wonder that. I wouldn't doubt it. Because it was so attached to that movie, you couldn't help but. I wouldn't blame the back of the box. I will look this up after this episode and report back to the audience. But I wouldn't doubt it. The back of the box feels like somebody's like, hey, let's watch Into the Dragon. And the other person was like, I don't know. It's just some dumb karate movie. And they're like, no, listen to this. It's a spectacular visual feast. But a a lot of writing. All right, David. How does this movie start? I'll tell you how it starts, David. With the old Warner Brothers logo, the... uh, Black and white one designed by Saul Bass, famously. Do you like this logo? Mac, I don't like this logo. What? I love it. Oh, fuck you. It's truly one of my favorites. (laughs) I love it so much. It's so simple, but it's so crisp. Yeah, truly one of my favorite logos. This is the logo that whenever Soderbergh makes a Warner Brothers movie, he'll like trot it out or something. I just say this is my second favorite Warner Brothers logo. My first one is the classic WB Shield as frozen by Mr. Freeze in the beginning of Batman and Robin. That really sets a tone, my man. But Mac, this movie starts at a Shaolin temple in Hong Kong, where martial artist and instructor Lee, played by Bruce Lee, is approached by British intelligence agent Braithwaite, played by Jeffrey Weeks, to accept an invitation to a secret and mysterious fighting tournament being held by the evil Han, played by Shi Qin. Braithwaite briefs Lee on Han's dealings in drugs and sex trafficking, and that's all it takes to get Lee on board. Unless Lee also has a secret personal reason for going, hmm, he does. To avenge his sister's suicide? Let's enter this story. So we meet Lee uh, as Braithwaite climbs the steps of the Shaolin Monastery, Temple, whatever, school. And we meet him with a 1970s super zoom. He is wearing little black Speedos. He's got, you know, some, not boxing gloves, but some sort of like training gloves on. And he very quickly beats the shit out of, oh shit, is that Sammo Hung? That's right, Martial Law himself. Is that the name of his show? Martial Law, yeah, that's right, with Arsenio Hall. That's right, a great intro for... Bruce Lee here. And of course, I feel like we have to call this out. You look at the way that people train for Marvel superhero movies or, you know, these other kind of like modern movies and people like Chris Pratt are getting shredded. But that was not a thing back in the day, right? Like if Michael Keaton took off his rubber Batman costume in 1989, I don't know if he's got an ab, but Bruce Lee shredded like insane. For, and if you're watching this in the 70s, you're like, you had to be like, who's this mutant on screen? Yeah, I would describe him as sinewy. Like, there's no wasted muscles here. There are no glamour muscles on this guy. It is all, it reminds me of, if you've ever seen Pumping Iron, it's Arnold Schwarzenegger basically talking about his quest to get his body to 100%. He wants to be able to do the most with his body that any human being can do. I feel like Bruce Lee could stake a claim to having achieved that. Like, his body has a purpose. And you're right. I can't imagine what it would have been like in 1973 to see this guy on screen you know, who was the buffest guy before this? Paul Newman, maybe? I don't know. A Charles Bronson. Ooh, la, la. <laughs> Look, I don't mind. 
But Bruce Lee is so shredded. I wonder if audiences in the 70s knew what they were in for with this movie because it starts off with essentially a demonstration of Bruce Lee's abilities. He's beating up on Sammo Hung, who plays Anton Chigurh in this movie. And it's just <laughs> great. There's no camera trickery. There's no swapping in a stunt performer. It is Bruce Lee performing a martial arts demonstration. And there's something really appealing about it. Yeah, it was not until the next day after I watched this movie that I, I kind of came back down to earth to the fact that this is a 1970s action movie. Because the 1970s action movies we've done so far, what we've done, uh, what, Dirty Dozen, and then Taking a Pelham. Has, has there been another one? Upside uh, Adventure. Oh, and right. The Driver. Yeah. Oh, The Driver was 70s? Yeah, the fighting in all those movies, you know, those action scenes, they're, some of them are, are, are great and, and a lot of fun, but they definitely feel dated. They don't have the kind of fight choreography that you would expect to see in a modern action movie, right? But mm-hmm. this movie in 1973... All of this action holds up. None of it looks dated. None of it looks like, you know, silly. Like Adam West, you know, Biff Bam powing someone with a, a really super telegraphed stage punch. The fighting in this movie is great. And obviously, you know, Bruce Lee, one of the credits at the beginning of this movie says fights choreographed by Bruce Lee, which I don't think a lot of fight choreographers were getting their name in the opening credits. So this movie definitely sets the tone early that you're going to see some kick-ass fighting. Yeah, definitely when you see that credit fights staged by Bruce Lee or whatever the accurate title is. You could tell that the movie wants to, I don't want to say make a cash grab, but they definitely want to capitalize on the name of Bruce Lee. Like you said, he died a few months before the release of this movie, but I don't think they capitalized on his name in vain. I think they truly believed, hey, we need to honor the work that this guy did. We need to honor the showcase that this movie is for him. And this movie pays off. I was very glad that it wasn't like a Raul Julian Street Fighter where it's like, oh, this had to be your last movie? Oh, boy. Yeah, well, did you know he actually made one more movie because he was filming, was it, I think, Game of Death? And then they lost the footage. And so, like, five years after he died, they found it and recut it into a movie. Same director as this one. Uh, I forget his name, even though you just fucking said it, Robert Klaus. So, yeah, maybe we'll get uh, around to that at some point. So after Lee beats up on Sam Hung. Lee has a one-on-one with his teacher. Shaolin Abbott is what he's credited as, played by Roy Chow. And he's got like sort of your classic, what you'd expect from this kind of movie, where his his hair is dyed white, like his facial hair. His ADR is very stoic. And it makes me wonder, is there any chance this is this guy's real voice? Or do, is this what kind of we expect out of, you know, Kung Fu and martial arts movies, where characters will speak very stern and slow and very confident? Yeah, in fact, I think this is like the first voice we hear in the movie. So that already sets an unsteady precedent for me. I, you know, not remembering what Bruce Lee sounded like in this movie, I was worried that he was going to be like, hi, I'm Bruce Lee. Time to go kick some ass in the karate. You know, <laughs> just kind of up here where it doesn't match. Like Jackie Chan and uh, the Drunken Master. Hey, it's me, Jackie Chan. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But thankfully, it's just the mentor. In fact, if we want to play a little bit of the audio, just to give the audience a taste of this. Yeah, tell you what, let's play the audio here. And this is the Abbot talking to Lee. And you kind of get the Shaolin belief system here. I see your talents have gone beyond the mere physical level. Your skills are now at the point of spiritual insight. I have several questions. What is the highest technique you hope to achieve? To have no technique. Very good. What are your thoughts when facing an opponent? There is no opponent. And why is that? Because the word I does not exist. And so after this exchange, the abbot tells Lee, he's like, you know, there was one student that got away from uh, this temple. His name is Han. He's now a bad dude. And there's a martial arts tournament. 
And we want you to fight in it to reclaim the lost honor of this temple or school or whatever it is. And then to end the conversation, you know, Abbott wants to tell Lee that this dude, this British guy is here, Braithwaite. But all he says is, there's a man here. You will go to him, which, uh, easy, buddy. All right. <laughs> That's kind of the problem on the island. Don't uh, don't set that precedent. So, but before Lee can go talk to uh, Braithwaite, is that how you say his name? That's how I say this name. I think I say his name, Braithwaite. First, he has to give a quick lesson to one of his students. And this young student comes up and he's like, uh, punch. And he's like, no, no, with emotion. Hit me with your heart or something. David, in this movie, there's a lot of talk about the philosophy of fighting. Now, what did you take away from this? Is this just sort of character work? Like, oh, we're trying to learn about the character of Lee? Or do you think this is just Bruce Lee stuff kind of using this movie to you know, spread his philosophy to educate the public? I would say the latter. This chunk, as well as the, the lessons of the mentor that we just heard a moment ago, it feels like martial arts for dummies or like martial arts 101, where it's just a lot of gauzy platitudes. It's a lot of philosophy that doesn't really have any weight behind it. But because it's coming from a reputable source, because it's coming from an expert in martial arts, it gives a little more weight to it. I think this is just that because when you break it down, especially this moment where he's teaching uh, Lao, I believe is the student's name, mm -hmm. none of it comes up later. You know, at least with the mentor a moment ago, that will come up much later in the movie and it'll, it'll provide uh, some help to Lee. But this just feels like it's establishing more philosophy, trying to establish kind of the mysticism, for lack of a better term, of this universe. And it's also just a showcase for Lee to show that he's kind of a shitty teacher. Like, he's an excellent instructor. <laughs> but as far as, like, a leader of youth, he does not care for that. And that kind of charms me. Maybe 1970s audiences really liked it when uh, adults uh, hit children. Maybe that was <laughs> what they were into. But from what I know about Bruce Lee, like, he definitely, you know, saw himself not just as, like, an action hero or a movie star. He definitely, like, uh, felt that he was an ambassador for kung fu and martial arts, kind of like Arnold Schwarzenegger viewed bodybuilding, which David, I should have said this in the friendship check-in, but I finished Schwarzenegger's book. I read his oh. self-help book, mm -hmm. Be Useful. And I got to say, a lot of his life examples are bodybuilding related, like way too many. It's actually kind of awesome. That was his life. Like to get a career out of just bodybuilding, I defy the audience to find someone who has a more unlikely career beginning than, than Arnold Schwarzenegger. If you're wondering whether or not now is the time to buy a house, let me tell you a story about when I was working for Joey, the puppet guy, and etc. <laughs> but special British agent, I don't know what he is, fucking Braithwaite sits down to briefly on what's going on with Han, this bad guy. And he's like, oh, Chapa, there's this island, and we know he's doing something, we just don't have any evidence of it, which, when did that stop the British from fucking around with another country? They love doing it. This British intelligence is nowhere near intelligent because they're briefing Lee, they're showing him footage that they got from the island, photographs, you know, film strips, stuff like that, and they show Han's bodyguard, O'Hara, played by Bob Wall, and they're showing video of Bob Wall, like, smashing bricks, smashing boards, getting hit with two by four, stuff like that. And they mention, oh, this footage was shot before he picked up a facial scar somewhere. And then later on, they're talking about, uh, they have an operative there, Mei Ling, and they talk about, we have an operative, but uh, we seem to have lost her. We don't quite know uh, where she is or what she's doing on the island. This is not very good intelligence. Like this is very incomplete. You should be filling in the gaps on a lot of this stuff. Yeah, they're very kind of la-di-da, oh, well, uh, you know, chin up, think of the queen about it kind of thing. So one thing they do mention, though, is that these women go to the island and they're never heard of and seen again, except they did find a body and it had, look, David, I don't do heroin, but even I know these were the fakest fucking track marks or heroin needles 
injections I've ever seen in my life. They just put a bunch of like dots on an arm and they're like, look, she was on drugs. So here's what we know about this island, that Han is bad. And as far as he's probably sex trafficking, right? And they sent their undercover agent, I guess, to be sex trafficked and they lost her. Probably she got trafficked. I don't know. The British don't seem to be too bothered by it. So Lee accepts the mission and we think he's just, you know, trying to reclaim the honor of his school. Not a good reason to do anything, folks. But then he goes to a graveyard, talks to a tombstone. He has a flashback because the tombstone belongs to his, his dad, a.k.a. the old man. And his, his dad was telling him that he's, he's been to this place before. And he's like, oh, I was with your sister. Remember her? Well, here's how she died. And then we have this flashback to the dad and Su Lin just like hanging around. Su Lin is the name of Lee's sister. And the dad is like, yeah, some of Han's men showed up and they were just boasting and being unruly, being real jerks. And so we see Ohara minus the facial scar. They start to harass the dad and they start to corner Su Lin. Su Lin is running away and, and trying to escape, right? And David, what was the vibe you got? What do you think Sulin was escaping from? They weren't trying to rob her. No, I think they were trying to, at my most diplomatic, uh, abduct her for the aforementioned sex trafficking later on. I, I think they saw her as as a commodity and they just wanted to use her as that. Yeah, I, I think that was Sulin's perspective as well. You know, whoever this, I forget the name of this uh, actor who played Sulin, but she was great. She's kicking all kinds of fucking ass. But at some point she gets cornered and instead of going with these dudes, she takes a piece of broken glass and, you know, kills herself by shoving it into her chest. David, holy shit. This lighthearted adventure real quick is fucking dark. It's dark and it's a little frustrating. This was the first moment in the movie where I started to be concerned for the movie. But it's like you said, Su Lin, who was played by Angela Mao Ying, is excellent. But it, the movie is a little inconsistent with what it wants to do with Su Lin because... You know, to propel the story forward, you need Su Lin to die. You know, you don't need her to, but that's what the movie sets up. So you kind of need to make her a little helpless. But at the same time, no one wants to see that movie. So there's spurts where Su Lin's helpless. She's running for her life. She's dodging attackers. But then the next minute, she decides to stand her ground and fight. And those moments are awesome. And then she'll run away and trip in dirt. And she's helpless again. But then she kicks ass again. I wanted some consistency in tone, but I think selfishly, I also wanted Sulin to just stay alive and kick ass because it was really a wasted opportunity to have this awesome actor showcase some really decent skills and then be dead by her own hand two minutes later. Yeah, the fighting was, again, this very high level, like, oh, they're putting on a show. So for it to quickly be like, well, I don't want to get raped, so I'm going to kill myself was a, a pretty grim turn that I was not expecting. Well, Mac Lee is on his way to Han's Island. He agrees to participate in the tournament, so he's on his way. And we're also introduced to two other combatants. The down-on-his-luck gambler Roper, played by John Saxon, and inner-city badass Williams, played by Jim Kelly. We find out that Roper is trying to outrun some gambling debts, and Williams is trying to outrun Johnny Law. Our three heroes set sail for Hans Island, and Lee sets sail to some loser named Parsons. So we get our intro here to Roper, played by John Saxon, who, uh, his most famous role in my mind is he's the villain in the movie Mitchell. The Joe Don Baker film. But what do you think of the intro to, to John Saxon's character here, Rope? I wanted more of this because we get the flashback to Roper. He is a career gambler. We see him on a golf course. He's trying to hustle another guy. But while he's hustling one guy at golf, he gets uh, approached by some loan sharks who he owes money to. Uh, there's actually a really funny moment where Roper is looking for his golf ball in the rough. And that's where he sees the loan sharks. And the loan sharks are like, I say you can't make it. And so Roper says, you want to bet? 
And the loan shark is so charmed by this. He just shakes his head and smiles like, you gotta love him. Like, who could hate Roper? He's just going to try to gamble his life away. But I really wanted to know more about Roper and his situation. He's got a, a very attractive assistant with him who's wearing like a fat Albert and the Cosby Kids hat. Like, is that his assistant? How does he pay her? What is his job? I almost wanted like an up montage. Just something condensed into four or five minutes. Just real quick quick glimpses into his life. He's at the, you know, off-track betting and he loses a bunch of money. So he goes to sell his plasma. But then he gets some more money and he loses it again at a basketball game. Like, let's really tell the hell out of Roper's story. He does at some point mention, he's like, how much money do I have left in my bank account? And his assistant is like 63 bucks. We have to remember, David, in 1970s dollars, that was $5 million. Things just cost less <laughs> back then. But Roper beats up the loan sharks, makes quick work of them. And John Saxon's fighting style here, or his fighting skills on display as Roper, they're not quite as smooth as Lee's. And I was like, oh, did this guy not really know? How to fight is this bad? Turns out, David, Saxon was a black belt in judo and Shotokan karate, and that's from Wikipedia. I didn't, I don't have an inside man at the, the Saxon estate. <laughs> and look, his later on in the movie, you know, the more I watch him, it's like, yeah, he knows what he's doing. He's just, you just put him next to Bruce Lee and we all look stupid. Yeah, but I'll tell you what, you know, for John Saxon to still stand out is really impressive, like you said, because he is co starring with Bruce Lee. I actually remembered him as the dad from Nightmare on Elm Street. I remember him as the police chief father of of Heather Langenkamp. So to see him in this movie as a martial artist, as someone who can handle himself really well, he handles, you know, the fight scenes really well. I was so impressed. So I I will probably do a deep dive later on into the earlier works of John Saxon, as well as Jim Kelly, who we also get introduced to here. Jim Kelly's gonna play Williams. We'll see him at a martial arts school. Let's say in the inner city. I don't want to be that way about it, but we don't really get to spend a lot of time with Williams in his flashback either, but it's a pretty impressive flashback. Yeah, this is Jim Kelly's like breakout role. He ended up having an awesome career on his own. According to Wikipedia, he was a karate world champion. That sounds vague. But yeah, he's on his way, I think, to the airport, right? To go fly out to this tournament. And these two like shitty cops stop him. And at some point they call him a slur. And at uh, which point I said, beat their ass out loud. And he fucking did. Now, David, he did not only beat the ass of these cops. What else did he do? Just that little, you know, just for the cherry on top. Well, after he beats these two cops up, he gets in their cop car and drives away. I was so thrilled by this. This will be my first mark out moment. And again, you know, the movie is setting out to be a crowd pleaser. You have to imagine in 1973, there's a whole section of this audience who love the shit out of that. Myself included 50 years later, so this will be my first mark out moment. Yeah, it was great. I love the fact that the cops, they might have been able to explain away the bruises or bumps they got from just fighting Williams. But the fact that he stole their car, they definitely had to go back to the headquarters and be like, a car got stolen. And just the extra humiliation. <laughs> All-time move by Williams here. What a champ. Yeah. But Williams and Roper, they know each other because when they meet on this boat, to the island like hey old buddies they were both vietnam veterans i don't know if they served together did you get that vibe or were they just they just know each other from the martial arts tournament circuit no i got the sense that they served together in, in nam i got the sense that they worked side by side in some capacity and also you know i forget when this came up i feel like we have talked about it in a previous episode but you know this is another movie where they're using vietnam or they're using military service as a shorthand for badassery where it's like well, they served together in Vietnam, so of course they know martial arts as a result. Oh, really? That's so... <laughs> I did not connect the two. I just thought it was just telling us, the audience, that they were tough. 
Not that like everyone over in Vietnam uh, studying these, uh, the Eastern ways of fighting. And we see Lee also making his way on a boat, very stoic. He's on like a little rowboat and going to the boat that's going to take him to the island. We also get a shot of the airport here in Hong Kong, or at least not the airport, but the way that planes fly in. And I just actually this week saw some pictures of this old Hong Kong airport before it closed down. The planes used to fly so close to the city. (laughs) Every picture is terrifying. So the fact that (laughs) you saw a plane flying very low in this movie, I was like, hey, that's a thing. (laughs) So we get the opening fight. We get the opening flashback sequence with his sister. And now as all the parties make their way to the boat, the pace of this movie has slowed down tremendously. But David, there's these really like wide shots of the harbor. This movie looks great. I did not care at all that the pace was slowing because I was into it. Yeah, there's a serenity to the shots. There's, you know, you're seeing the harbor, really. You're seeing where all the the boats have docked and, and where they're taking off from. And even the harbor is pretty. Like, I know these are just transport ships or, you know, these are just beaten up boats. But there's a beauty in that, too. There's something very just pastoral and, and serene. I enjoyed it a lot. It does also serve to build the excitement for and the anticipation for when they get to the island. Because you also have all the combatants on this boat, including one New Zealand fella named Parsons, played by Peter Archer. And so there's some tension there. Like, this guy is just a, a thick neck. He's just this piece of crap who can't wait to fight. He's bullying the, the help on the boat. And so... It's nice to have this this peaceful moment on their way to the island, but still have a little bit of tension between the characters. And on this boat, just in case you thought Roper has left his gambling days behind him, no, because he starts betting on what, David? Inexplicably, he spots a mantis fight. Apparently there is a, a crowd gathering around two mantises who are fighting each other. Oh, they the crew of the boat definitely brought these mantises. I think they they, they had a little, like, a little mantis cage. I think like, hey, you on the boat? Do you uh, you work in the crew? It's like, yeah. Ah, oh, sick. Bring your mantis. We'll <laughs> have some mantis fights. <laughs> Here's the thing. That absolutely is true. But I didn't get the overt sense that there was any gambling going on. Like there wasn't anybody waving money or holding tickets. It was just Roper of his own accord walking over and be like, hey, what's the action on this? And it's like, Roper, pour some water on it. You do. Not, you have a real problem. <laughs> you know what? You're absolutely right. No one else was betting. They, the crew was just in it for the love of mantis fighting. <laughs> for Roper, he's trying to find someone to pick up his action, and Lee does. Just in case you thought Lee was some sort of some guy who is a, above gambling. No, he he sees some easy money because I guess Lee can spot a winner in terms of, you know, he's, he's good at handicapping mantises. And sure enough, his mantis wins. Roper loses some money over to him. And somebody comes out, David, a member of the crew with a big box of oranges. And I said, hey, oranges out loud, just because I don't know. (laughs) I used to play soccer when I was a kid. If somebody brings out a lot of oranges, I get excited. But someone quickly, for no fucking reason, knocks over these oranges. Who is it? It's Parsons, played by Peter Archer, this big lunkhead. And so this is Lee's moment to become the hero of the movie. Just a real small moment where he challenges Parsons. He's like, hey, you know, you want to pick on somebody, pick on me. And so Parsons, uh, you know, wants to know more about about Lee's fighting style. And Lee is like, well, it's it's fighting without fighting. And Parsons is like, oh, yeah, show me. So Lee says, well, let's get in this boat. and We'll go to that faraway island and fight on the beach. And Parsons is like, OK. Yeah, which what the fuck? This boat is headed one direction. This idea sounds good to Parsons. It's like, oh, yeah, we'll take a rowboat out to an island and fight on it. And then what? You know, build a boat motor out of coconuts and catch up to the, the main boat? No. What a, uh, Parsons is so stupid. He right there signed his murder permission slip. 
even like he'd already been cruel. He probably already signed it. But now it's just like you're this stupid. You you deserve to be. I don't know your face thrown in a propeller, which did not happen. But what does happen? What does happen is he gets lured onto a lifeboat by Lee. Lee is like, well, let's go to this beach then. Let's fucking fight each other. Parsons gets on the boat first and then Lee lets the boat go. So like if someone's going to get their permission slip signed, but not die immediately, the next best thing is to watch them be humiliated. So he's trailing behind in this lifeboat. The boat's youngsters come out and start playing with the rope attached to the boat and start basically fucking with Parsons. I really like this. I I don't care what happens to Parsons after this. Yeah, Parsons does make it to the island. However, within 30 seconds, that boat was mostly underwater. Uh, Maybe he swam. I'm not sure. But real quick question for you, David. So the gang here, our heroes, they're journeying to a secluded island where there's going to be a martial arts tournament on this island. A la, I don't know, the quest, Mortal Kombat. David, is this the first secluded island martial arts movie? Tournament movie? It has to be the first good one. I cannot think of anything before this. This movie actually did inspire me. I do want to do a deeper dive into like 60s and 70s martial arts movies, 60s and 70s black exploitation movies, because I feel like there's a lot of hidden gems there where the movies just go all out bananas. But with that said, I have to imagine there are other, but nothing that's going to stick out as a classic like this. Yeah, it's something to definitely keep our eyes on. You know, it's funny, what movie did not feature a fighting tournament? Street Fighter, which, uh, uh, okay. But Mac, Lee, Roper, and Williams arrive for dinner at the Han Island Food Court. Han introduces himself to the combatants and introduces us to a trio of deadly ladies, one of which happens to be British operative Mei Ling, played by Betty Chung. The combatants get to pick from the dessert cart, led by Island Madam Tanya, played by Anna Capri. Lee picks Mei Ling, and they discuss what's really going on around here. The next morning is the opening round of the tournament, and Williams and Roper soundly beat their opponents. So as the gang arrives at the island, oh, there's one more tough baddie waiting in that island. David, it's Bolo Young himself, the villain from Bloodsport. Yes, credited as Yang Si in this movie, but his character's name is Bolo, and I guess he's so iconic that his name in future movies just became Bolo Young. So that's amazing. I'm really happy for him. Yeah, he adopted the name Bolo. One more thing about Bolo Young, or Jung, I don't know how you say it, is that he was really good friends with Bruce Lee, and he met him while filming a commercial for Winston Cigarettes. Now, David, I searched for this commercial, Bruce Lee, non-smoker, advertising Winston Cigarettes, and uh, the internet does not have it. I I apologize uh, if you also got excited to see uh, a commercial where, where Bruce Lee hawks cigarettes. Get on it, Lost Media community. But as the heroes arrive on the island and get off the boat, Roper sees Tanya, played by Anna Capri. And Tanya's looking very sexy. And so what Roper says to Lee, he says this. Mmm, would you look at that? A woman like that could teach you a lot about yourself. The way he's like, hey, I'm going to tell you something sleazy, some sleazy bro time. I automatically was like, oh, rolling my eyes at it. But then I was like, wait, hold on. In terms of like, uh, hey, look at that attractive lady. I'm going to say something to my friend. This is actually pretty like tame. Like a woman like that, you know what she could do? Teach you a lot about yourself like that. The way he says it is very lascivious or whatever. But what he actually says is uh, not bad at all. There's a real tenderness to it. To have such respect for your next victim that you're like, oh, she could teach me a lot about living and a little about love. Hey, check that out. You know what she could do, right? Yeah. Make you want to be a better man. You feel me, bro? (laughs) 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 It's like, wait, hold on. (laughs) 
Your vibe is one thing, what you said is another. I'm seeing and hearing two different things. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but we do get a better look at Hans Island. We do get a better look at this fighting school that he's running on the island or whatever we want to call this. I guess he's building a fighting force of extraordinary magnitude to steal a line from the Kentucky Fried movie. But this fighting school does not inspire fear out of me. Like, it's a very lazy fighting school. I really wanted to see... I wanted to see something on fire get chopped in half, if that makes sense. I wanted to see someone get sacrificed. I wanted to see something that made you think, oh, this is not your daddy's fighting school. This is almost like a, a Midsommar type of fighting school. Yeah, it was almost like a high school team uh, hosting the NCAA tournament, right? Like, they are not going to be very impressive. No dunks. Yeah, no dunks. But the honored guests are treated to this banquet. And David, oh my God, this banquet. I wrote down in my notes, I am overstimulated. It's like every entertainment that Han could think of is on display at the same time. Like there's two guys sumo wrestling in the middle. Surrounding them are a bunch of acrobats. And then walking around them is, is people sort of in one of those uh, giant dragons, right? Mm -hmm. There's just people walking around with food. It's just too much. Like uh, I just watching this. I'm not there. I'm not in the room. But watching it was like, I'm just driving me nuts. I'm, I'm, I feel like I'm crazy over here. There was a lot going on. It was very appealing. I wanted my own mall food court, I guess, but the logistics of it don't quite add up to me because this is Hans Island, if I'm not mistaken. This isn't just a province of a bigger government or country or landmass or anything like that. This is an island that is populated by whatever Han desires. So I'm wondering if all of the staff live here or if they have to like take a boat at the end of the night back to the mainland. But I was also wondering if a young Barbara Streisand watched this movie because I don't know if you know this, Mac, but uh, Barbara Streisand famously in one of her homes, I, I want to say in like Malibu, but in the basement of her home, she basically has a mall. She has a clothing store where instead of just having a closet, she has assistants go buy inventory, stock this store so that she can go shopping in the privacy of her own basement. She's got like a sweet shop in there. She's got like a restaurant or something else in there. And look. If I were to ever get a boatload of money, you better believe I would be building some kind of mall or some kind of entertainment complex in my home. So I wonder if Barbara Streisand was inspired by this movie to do the same when she got rich. Wow, David, if you're going to open up a mall in your basement, let's say you had the basement big enough to replicate some kind of mall, mm -hmm. like not just a shelf, but space enough to where someone's like, is this a mall? I can't even imagine it. What would be the first store you'd put in your giant basement mall toy store i put a toy store and uh, a batting cage wait malls had batting cages no but mine does <laughs> but like here's the thing though i would love to have a toy store because i would love to walk in and see the, the shelves stocked but I, i'm also not stupid i know that i do own those now this is just a way for me to display them so that i'm enjoying it it's a mess like Rich people are, are broken, and we need to take some other money. Yeah, I definitely put a KB Toys, and a main feature of the KB Toys and Mall Toy Store was, for some reason, at the front of the store, the little uh, animals, little mechanical animals, you put batteries in, and they take a couple steps, and they, like, bark if it's a dog, and then it back its back legs lower, shoot out so it does a flip, you know what I'm talking about? Oh, you bet I do. Oh, yeah. For some reason, these little annoying toys were always out in front as if to, like, draw people in. Like, I have no interest in to, whoa! That little mechanical dog did a flip. Let's go in and see what else they got. But Han finally enters, and David, this dude is evil. You know how you can tell he's evil? How's that? He's wearing gloves. Something about wearing <laughs> gloves indoors like this? Oh, he's bad news. He's bad news. 
Yeah, those are strangling gloves by all accounts. And so Han's like, welcome to the island. Hope you guys have a good time. I will definitely be sending around some concubines, I guess, for you to have sex with later. So sure enough, they go room to room. They knock on Williams's door and they're like, hey, which one of these ladies do you want to have sex with? And he named, he grabs like four. This caravan stops by Roper's room and Tanya is, you know, the leading uh, person. Here. She's the madam. And she's like, which members of my harem do you want to have sex with? And he's like, I already spotted my lady. It's you, Tanya. And Tanya's like, I love it. And then they go to <laughs> Lee's room and Lee's all oh, like, I'll take this one. And he chose the undercover operative. And he's like, it's me. I'm Lee. I'm an, I'm an undercover. And instead of having sex, they have a little powwow. But David, here's the thing. You know, Kelly, he chooses like five and makes a joke. And he's like, I choose more, but I'm trying to reserve, save my strength. Is that these women, David, as far as we know, they're drug addicted sex slaves, right? Okay. We know that now with, with the benefit of, of looking back. I'll be honest with you. In the moment, I didn't really know that. I mean, I could obviously put two and two together and say, hey, I'll bet none of these women want to have sex. But I just thought, you know, hey, these are some good time gals. And I, I left the, the heroin addiction at the door. This movie has got a tone problem. Because it has some darker elements, right? The suicide of his sister, the sex trafficking that's going on. But the movie never changes its kind of lighthearted, fun adventure tone. It's like, you got to shift gears a little bit when we're talking about some of this stuff in the movie. It's like, why? Let's keep going. Like, it takes me out of it a little bit. Like, I feel a little disconnected at times. Like, why are we all excited about these sex slaves showing up? This is not a good thing, guys. I'm with you, but I've also seen a lot of other movies from the 70s where they don't even care about tone. They just happen to be some of the most brutal stuff you've ever seen. So I appreciate this movie trying to have it all. Like, it is a lighthearted adventure, but then it also has, like, it never gets into I spit on your grave territory, I guess is what I'm saying. It's You can still kind of keep the the harsher elements of this at arm's length until you get to the third act. But by the third act, you want to see Han get destroyed. I've never seen Spit on Your Grave, David, because I was raised to be respectful of graves. But it is the next morning, <laughs> and the tournament has begun, and we're going to get our first spotlight fight. Williams versus Parsons. Fight. No, Parsons, he's the shithead on the boat who's so tough, and he ended up having to Right out the trip on the dinghy there. How does this fight go? Williams makes quick work of this guy. In fact, I want to say it's a shutout. I want to say it's, I'm assuming the point system is best of five. And I think this goes three nothing in favor of Williams. Yeah, I think we were supposed to think that Parsons is really tough. And so Williams beating him this easily makes Williams seem tougher. But honestly, it made me think that just Parsons is a piece of shit. Oh yeah, he was an absolute tomato can. And so I was just happy to see him get uh, whooped. So early on. By the way, as long as we're mentioning who's shredded and who's not, Kelly takes off his shirt here. Yeah, another Shredman. It's Turtles 2, Secret of the Use, folks. Shredder's back. Yes, and then we we get Roper's fight after that. And Roper, he's got two competitions going on at the same time, you could say. He's got uh, he's got the fight that he's involved in, and then he's got something else going on on the side. Yeah, he tells Williams, he's like, hey, I, I got a real, uh, I forget his term for him, but he's basically, like, I got a real sucker here. And, you know, I want you to bet some money, you know, for me. And at first, this guy will not take the bet. Williams is like, hey, you want to bet money on this fight? And the guy's like, no. And then Roper, in order to, you know, juice the action, starts taking a beating on purpose. And then after like the third time Roper gets knocked down, you know, each time the guy, you know, uh, declining to bet, the third time Roper gets knocked down, the guy's like, all right, I'll bet you some money. And then Roper's like, finally, I can make some money on myself. And so then he easily beats the shit out of his opponent. But the fact that he's willing to take a beating to drive up the betting stakes here. Uh, I love it. <laughs> it's just kind of an unexpected, kind of unnecessary character angle. 
But I, I thought it was great. Yeah, see, this is what I wanted out of the up montage that I requested earlier in the movie. I want to see the psycho elements of Roper, and I want to see those psycho elements unleashed where he's just taking a beating. He can turn it on and off, and then when he's ready, he'll flip the switch and he'll go psycho mode on you. But uh, I want to see that fire that burns within Roper. I really want to get to the to the core of that madness. But on day one, Lee does not fight. I'm not really sure how this tournament is run. But that night, Lee does do something. Well, Mac, that night, Lee sneaks out to find more about what's really going on around here, but doesn't get very far. The next morning, Lee competes in the tournament and murders his opponent, O'Hara, played by Bob Wall. Williams, meanwhile, is accused of sneaking out the previous night and snooping around, but Williams doesn't snitch on Lee, so Han beats Williams to death. Later, Han takes Roper on a supervillain tour of the island's underground crime layer and tries to recruit Roper to join his operation. So Bruce Lee, playing Lee, <laughs> it's hard not to call him Bruce. Lee goes, you know, out to like do some recon on the island, like find out what's really going on. And he does beat up a few guards, right? However, at some point he's like crouching because he's trying to go stealth mode, he's trying to go solid snake. And he sees a couple of these night watch guards. And I got to say, David, these guys are fucking nerds. Just, just looking at him, right? And the fact that Lee had to like play it cool and not beat the shit out of him, it must have been killing him. He must have been like, oh God, I kill these guys so much. But Lee does fight some guards here, and it's the first time we see Lee fighting someone who is not Simo Hung. And David, the way Bruce Lee fights, I love it. There's so much disrespect when he punches his opponents here. It's just, uh, it's just some sassy beatdowns all around. It's great. Yeah, there's a real Muhammad Ali quality to Bruce Lee's fighting style where he has this swagger to him. Man, I'll tell you, if I haven't said it already, Bruce Lee's charisma jumps off the screen. Like, when you see him, you know this is a movie star. He's a handsome guy. You know, we've already talked about how cut he is. He's able to to execute fight choreography well. But yeah, on top of all that, he's just beating the crap out of dudes. It's really great. I again, I'm wondering what the audiences in 1973 must have been thinking is like, holy shit, who is this special effect? Yeah, his character is very confident and I think with some other actors, you might have gotten a wooden performance would have been the result. But somehow Lee is able to play a tough, almost too tough at times. And yet he's still very charismatic. I don't know if this is too much. I don't want to like gush or whatever, but I'm going to say it. I think the camera loves this dude. Mm-hmm. But Lee is just, he beats these guards down. William sees him out at night. and He's like, ah, cool, man. The next day at the beginning of the tournament, Han is like, okay, so uh, one of you people is sneaking out at night. Not cool. I do not like it. However, the guards that were defeated, they must be punished. And how are they going to be punished? They have to fight Bolo, and Bolo fucking murders these dudes. Uh, what was your least favorite kill? Meaning, what was the worst kill, David? Oh, man, they were all tied for first. It really was oh, just no, a display. No. There's a clear number one. You, you gotta be, it's when he picked up the dude in his arms like a little baby. You know where I'm going with this. That's what I'm saying. That was my favorite, because he basically folded this guy's clothes while the guy was still in him. <laughs> like, he just folds him in half like a billfold, crushes him to death, ostensibly. Oh, man, that is an all-timer. I love the crap out of that kill. Yeah, I wrote that in my notes. Holy shit. Because he picked up this guy, and I was like, he's going to break this dude's back over his knee, right? But instead, yep, he just puts those arms together, crunch, 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 and that guy is dead. Oh, my Lord. If this was like a modern movie you, you uh, or, or a Mortal Kombat video game, we would have seen the meat sandwich that guy became. But instead, we just heard some celery snap thanks to a fully artist and this guy stops moving. Well, let's break down the cause of death. Like the actual, you know, what's going to go on the on the death certificate. 
So do you think he was suffocated because he was folded? Or do you think something happened to his guts? Like, do you think his guts got squished? I think he's definitely paralyzed. I don't know if his neck got snapped along with it. I don't know. It just can't be good for you. I'm, maybe everything. Now I got to get folded. That's, no, I don't do it. Don't my do will. it. But after the, the crunching of the guards, as we like to call it, we get another fight here. It's Lee making his tournament debut against, oh my God, the dude who killed his sister. I thought they were going to save this for the end of the movie, but it is yet another uh, encounter here in the tournament. Lee versus O'Hara. Fight. Lee quickly shows that O'Hara is no match for him. This is an absolute boat race. It's three to nothing. Uh, O'Hara tries to fight dirty and gets kicked in the face. At one point, he gets kicked in the nuts. This is beautiful. I loved it so much. It culminates with O'Hara trying to get one last good swipe in at Lee, but then Lee kicks O'Hara into the crowd of spectators, falling backwards, taking a bunch of people with him. This is going to be my second markout moment. It was just... An absolute display. I know it's a motion picture that's scripted, but I loved it so much. Second markout moment. Yeah, some really cool slow motion shots of Lee just kind of going about his business. And one of them, I mean, just the energy you got from Bruce Lee in the slow motion shot pumped me up. I was on board. It was my first markout moment. But Lee seems satisfied to just beat the shit out of O'Hara. But O'Hara keeps coming back. And at some point, you know, like you say, tries to fight dirty. He grabs two nearby bottles and goes after Lee. And here's the thing. Because Lee seems satisfied with just beating the shit out of O'Hara, I thought that was it. But at some point, Lee's like, yeah, I've had enough. And he fucking kills him. Lee kills O'Hara, which is not what I was expecting from Lee at this moment. You know, I think we've been raised to expect heroes to value life or at least to spare the life of their their opponents or the villains of the movie. So for Lee to just have had enough to come at Lee with two broken bottles and then Lee's like, no, I'm going to stomp you out like a cigarette. Lee does make a real quick face when he's doing the slow motion cigarette stomp. He almost winces. And I think that was a brief moment of humanity. But brief is all we need because we need Lee to be a killing machine. He stacked his first body and I'm so happy for it. <laughs> yeah, he's like, look, I was satisfied with just beating you, but you fuck around, you find out. And so at the conclusion of that fight, I guess that's it for the tournament. One fight, uh, really, really drawing this thing out. Han is like, hey, Williams, I want to talk to you. And Williams is like, yeah, man, this is cool. And Han's like, you fucking snuck out last night because you were the only person outside your room. Williams is like, you know what? I was outside my room, but I was not the only person. And Han is like, okay, well, then who was it? And Williams is like, go fuck yourself. Han does not like that. Out come some guards. Williams beats the shit out of them. At some point, though, David... Williams kicks one of the guards or punches him. I don't remember. And the guard kind of flails and falls right in front of the desk of Han. And Han, without breaking eye contact with William, slaps his own guard away. And David, I loved it. Something about just being like, get the fuck out of here. Ah, so badass. It was another markout moment for me. I'm kind of impressed with Han here. Same here. In fact, credit to the movie for reading my thoughts in this moment because... Williams is meeting with Han in Han's quarters. Williams, you know, says he wasn't the guy sneaking around. So Han orders some guards to come in and surround Williams. And Williams remarks, man, you come right out of a comic book. And that's exactly what we want out of this movie. That's exactly what we want out of this villain. And he's 100% right. It is this comic book villain. The slap, <laughs> slapping his own guard is just, a, is just an excellent villain move. I loved it too. I didn't quite mark out. But this entire exchange is is pretty exceptional. Yeah, and just to get it across, in case you haven't seen the movie, it's not like he squares up, looks his guard in the face, and slaps him, you know, like, oh, bad job. The guy's in front of him. He doesn't even look at him. But just with a slap, he dismisses this dude. 
Just like, get out. <laughs> do not be in front of me anymore. You may leave. But I guess if you want to do something right and a professional is not uh, readily available because you're on an island, you got to do it yourself. DIY. It's another fight here. Williams versus Han. Fight. And David, just by the look of these two dudes, you think Williams would make quick work of Han, but the other way around, Han very quickly and emphatically beats the shit out of Williams in this and then kills him. Beats him to death. Yeah, this was wild. Uh, I knew something was up from the onset. Like you said, this was expected to be another blowout. Williams versus Han. Look at Williams. But Williams takes a swing at Han at one point and hits Han's arm. I want to say his left arm. And there's almost like a a slight clang in the soundtrack. And I was like, "Uh uh-oh, I guess something's going on with that arm. Sure enough, Han's got a, a metal hand. We see it at the end of this fight after he beats Williams, essentially with his metal hand. Han takes off his glove. And it is one of the most depressing things I've ever seen. Because it's not like they surrounded Han's real hand with metal or foil or anything like that. I really got the sense that they just painted his hand dark. Almost like like a charred baby doll hand. And this was not good. This was not a good moment. So yeah, I heard that same clang. And I was like, oh, right. I think Han has a, like an interchangeable hand. This one's fake. And then I was watching his hand during the fight. And David, that hand was moving. That hand was 100% moving. And I was like, oh, I guess it's kind of like a robot or kind of clockwork hand. And then when he takes off the glove and reveals a cast iron hand, I was like, oh, we didn't really try that hard (laughs) for consistency, (laughs) did we, movie? But now that Williams is dead, Han turns his attention to Roper. And he's like, hey, Roper, come with me to my, uh, my trophy room here. And his trophy room has got a lot of what in it? His trophy room has a lot of hands, like hands through the ages. There's one... I want to say, and correct me if I'm wrong, it was almost a grenade fist. I wasn't sure if there was a little, if the pin was where you attach the hand to the rest of the arm or if that was a pin for a grenade, but uh, that was interesting. He also has the bones of a hand that he keeps as a souvenir. We we will learn later. Or I guess we can assume that it's his hand, but the guy sure loves collecting hands to swap out. Yeah, I mean, I don't know why Roper... Didn't out loud say, hey, are you missing a hand? Are these your hands? Because this is kind of <laughs> weird, if not. But then Han is like, hey, Roper, how far are you willing to go? This cat I'm stroking like 100% a supervillain. I'm going to put in this guillotine I just happen to have. And Roper's like, I'm not going to fucking kill a cat in a guillotine. Oh, no, first he asks Roper to put his head in the guillotine. And Roper's yep. like, no. He's like, all right, I'll put this cat in. And you're like, is he, are we going to about to see a cat get guillotined? I don't want to see that. But then when Han pulls the handle of a guillotine, a crazy sentence, The guillotine lowers. Oh, it's not a real guillotine, David. It's the entrance to his secret underground crime lair, which is just full of so many fun things. Some open vats where he's cooking up some opium. Yum, 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 yum. At some point, he walks past these two jail cells, and all the prisoners are wearing these uh, black uniforms. And Roper's like, who are these guys? And he's like, oh, don't worry about them. They're just some some people that, uh, you know, they're no use to anyone or whatever he says. David, who are these dudes? What's the vibe you got? These dudes, well, the movie tells us these are just some drunks that wander about the island. I don't know. Here's the thing. I don't quite know what they did wrong in the context of the movie or in terms of the context of of Han's villainy. Like, were they just scooped up on some trumped up charge and now they're behind bars just for having a couple of drinks? You know, are they political prisoners? I don't quite know. But yeah, it's just a bunch of quote unquote drunk guys. Who are, who are locked up for an indeterminate amount of time. Yeah, and so you gather up a bunch of drunks. Okay, sure, I guess. But what are you going to do with them? 
I mean, this guy clearly, Han, does not give a shit about human life. It means nothing to him. So why are you keeping these guys around? Uh, you know, sinister purposes, I'm sure, but he doesn't say. He's not like, oh, meets back on the mini boys, right? He just has these guys around almost like they're going to do something later in the movie. Yeah, this is where I could have used the death school. I could have used, you know, if you see someone get sacrificed when you first get onto the island, like, where are they getting these people? Well, there's your answer. They've got an entire jail cell full of them down in the basement. But uh, we couldn't connect those dots. Nearly perfect movie. How dare you? And at some point, Han's like, check out this room full of hot ladies. What do you think, Roper? Roper's like, yeah, I'd do them. And Han's like, whoops, they're my daughters and they're perfect ninja assassins. Uh, they will not come into play later in the movie, though, so don't worry about it. But at some point, Han is like, Roper, here's what I want you to do. Uh, I'm trafficking all kinds of bullshit, and I'm looking to expand my operation. I want you to be my point man in the United States, North America, whatever, and start uh, taking my sweet, sweet drugs over there. And just to tell you I'm serious, and to really not get on your good side, look over here. Oh, it's the body of Williams in chains. I killed him. And now we're going to dump his body into this little underground lagoon of green water. Uh, at first, I was expecting to, the camera to pan over and see some piranha bubbling up or some sharks with freaking laser guns on their head or something like that. David, what was the fucking point of this green pool that they dumped Williams's body into? Buddy, I had a lot of problems with this pool. I wasn't quite sure that it was green. I just, I assumed it was that sort of 1970s kind of color gradation mm -hmm. where it was supposed to be blue, but it just comes off as green. But the pool itself, so Williams is suspended above the pool. He's tied up. He's all, He's already dead, but he's tied up so that he can't escape, I suppose. And then the pool itself is really just a pit surrounded by, by spikes in case Williams comes back to life and tries to climb out. But yeah, where are the piranhas? Where's the sharks with the freaking laser beams? Like, I wanted something. Like, let's see that green pool turn red at some point. You're like, oh, damn, Williams is hella dead. But no, he's just, he died six hours ago, and now his body's at the bottom of this pool. Yeah, or maybe there's acid, maybe it bubbles up, but no, they're just like, let's have one part of this layer that smells terrible at all times. I guess that's what they decided. That's right, Mac. But later that same night, Lee sneaks out of his room again to do some more recon and play with the snake. Lee is able to send an SOS for help and beat the absolute shit out of so many guards before being captured. So Lee goes out to do recon. He clearly hates guards because the last time... He snuck around, some guards got murdered, and he's like, well, murder them all, I don't give a shit. At some point, Lee does find, like, the communications room. He also earlier found a cobra lying around, and David wastes not, want not. So he grabs his cobra, and he puts it into a bag. And I remember saying, like, ah, oh, the close-up was probably a cobra. But in the wide shot where we see Lee grabbing an actual snake, they didn't put a cobra next to Bruce Lee. But then out comes the cobra's, like, uh, I don't know what we call it, it's, little, it's, uh, it's hood, I get, or crown. And I was like, oh, that's a fucking cobra. I mean, they might have taken his teeth. I don't know. But anyway, Lee's got a, a cobra bag. And he's like, oh, I'm, I know how to get rid of the guys in the communications room and not cause a scene by causing a scene. I'll open the door and throw the snake in there. And so these guys freak out. Kudos to the communications guys. Because as soon as they see the cobra, they go, oh, shit. They throw a chair through the glass window. And they're just like, we're getting the fuck out of here. We're not fucking around with this cobra. But then, David, the cobra is in one room. They're in another. Cobra contained. But what do these guys do? They keep running and never stop. Yeah, it's great. Well, because they know the, the deadly art of the Cobra. I, I do want to back up a little bit as far as the existence of this Cobra and talk about the entrance of this lair. Because it's outside. The first night that Lee goes sneaking around, he discovers it under this group of potted plants. So he quietly moves each potted plant off of the trap door, opens up the trap door and goes down. So the second night... 
somebody inexplicably put the potted plants back, but then there's also the snake there. Do you think the snake was a preventative measure or do you think the snake was just happenstance? I definitely think the snake was a, a, uh, a deterrent, a trap for whoever comes back a second time. You're like, oh, well, why didn't they post a guard there or several guards? Oh, no, 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 David. You have the brain of a normal human. You must think like an evil supervillain. The snake will deliver the justice this unknown sneak so originally deserves. Yeah, but those guards in the comms tower, they take off. But that doesn't mean that Lee's fists are going to go hungry. Oh, no, they're going to feast because you got some more guards coming. And it's just Lee versus guards fight. And this fight rules. This entire, you know, it's an extended piece. It's this great showcase for Bruce Lee's abilities. You know, he's fighting with 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 uh, with bow staffs, and then he's fighting with some sort of smaller sticks, and he's an expert at all of those. At one point, he gets a hold of some nunchucks and has a little demonstration about how good he is with nunchucks. And I'm watching this movie, and in this moment, in the scene with the nunchucks, again, going back to when it first came out in 1973, you think about how many generations of kids since this movie came out wanted nunchucks, probably because they saw Bruce Lee with them. And that made me so happy. And it made me so emotional. This will be my third mark out moment. Just the existence of the scene and Bruce Lee being a complete badass, an iconic level of badass. I loved it so much. I wonder how Bruce Lee would have reacted if you're like, hey, you know who 17 years from now will be the most prominent <laughs> nunchuck-er? Oh, Michelangelo and Ninja Turtle. <laughs> But you're like, oh, Lee's going to punch out these guards uh, and capacitate him. No, he's he's this neck-snapping machine. And then you're right. He starts the weapons demo by using all these different weapons. At some point, he has these, like, I don't know what we call them, truncheons, these short staves. He's got a short staff in each hand. And it's not the last dude he beats down with him, but the second to the last person he beats down. There's just such a fuck, fuck, fuck you, like, real quick. Just He does this dude so dirty. It's fucking awesome. It's another markout moment for me. I loved it. It's a level of action that you do not expect from a 1970s movie because the action so far that we've seen, we're not trying to showcase any of the... So the fighting so far we've seen in 1970s movies is, you know, it's story-based, right? We're trying to get across like what happens as part of the plot. Most of the action scenes aren't really filmed in a way to thrill, but that is not the case with this scene. The fact that you know, Lee like switches all these weapons. We're definitely the audience supposed to be like, oh, and, and golf clap in the theater. And and I did. Yeah, I think this is one of those movies that could have benefited with an update. Like it's shot very well for the time for 1973. But I think there are better visual directors now who could really get you to feel the scope of this fight. In fact, you know, this is the moment where Lee's trying to escape and he calls up the for the elevator so he can leave. But then the elevator opens and there's more guards in there. So he's just surrounded by guards. And he's whooping up on all of them. Like, there really is no other way to put it except whooping up on all of them. And, you know, on paper, that is a grand fight. That is an awesome scene. It just doesn't quite land as much as it could, but I'm nitpicking. Like, I'm talking about something that was operating at 98% instead of a full 100%. This, uh, this is terrific. Yeah, there's a lot of modern action movies where they kind of elevate the star, right? Uh, nobody with Bob Odenkirk, possibly the most extreme example of one where Bob Odenkirk did not necessarily bring anything to the table action-wise. The movie gave it to him. This is the complete opposite, where Bruce Lee elevates this movie. His, uh, he is, you know, like Jackie Chan, a human special effect, as you said earlier in the podcast. So yeah, he's definitely bringing it. But at some point, he does not get defeated, David. Some iron doors close, trapping him 
And now Lee has been captured. That's right. And the next morning, Han asks Roper to prove himself by fighting Lee. But Roper draws the line at fighting his fellow combatant. Han orders Roper to fight the mighty Bolo instead. But Lee and Roper beat Bolo. And Han does not take defeat well. So he orders Roper and Lee to fight everybody. But when Mei Ling releases the island's prisoners, all hell breaks boards in a fight that leaves Han running for his life. So I do want to start this chunk. Like we said in the in the last bit, Lee was able to get out an SOS. Uh, he was able to send the Morse code. And so we start this chunk with Braithwaite in bed at home in Britannia <laughs> or whatever. And he gets he gets the notification that Lee has sent the SOS. So bring in everybody you can. So Braithwaite gets on the phone and let's just play the audio for this. Hello. Put your colonel on. Well, wake him up. I don't care if he's not alone. Damn it all, I don't care who he's with. You bloody well put him on the line. This is such a terrific one-sided conversation. I'd never want to hear the other side of this call because it's just Braithwaite so incredulous. Like, what? What do you mean? You should have told me 30 minutes ago. Huh? No, like, I'm not doing it justice. You just heard it for crying out loud, but God damn it, I love it so much. Yeah, I love a good one-sided conversation. Hello, police? That's who you are? <laughs> but the next day we see Lee, right? He's, he's His hands are tied behind his back and Han orders Bolo to release him so he can fight Roper, I guess. Here's how Bolo does it. First of all, he gives a sinister look, then he pulls out a knife, shing! And then he reaches down and with a like a kind of a, a very forceful movement, cuts the ropes holding Lee's hands together. And he kind of like does, a, I don't know, he gives a look when he does it. It's amazing. Just something about the mega dramatic and intense way and sinister way he cut these ropes. I'm marked out again. Bolo Jung <laughs> understands the assignment, right? He definitely was not going to not give his all when just cutting the ropes off someone's hands. I love it. I will say, you know, credit to Bolo Jung. I feel like the camera loves him too. He's such an engaging presence from the first time you see him. I mean, I wasn't expecting to see Bolo Jung in this movie. But once I saw him, I was very happy to see him. He's just got a, a charisma to his face. His body is is one of a kind. Like he's just, he's built like a He-Man figure. Yeah. It's just, it's waist and then out. You know, I forget who it was. Like, who's it like model Angie Everhart or something was like, oh, my legs are insured with Lloyds of London. I'm surprised Lloyds of London didn't insure Ebola Young's pecs because he's got some big old mabs. <laughs> this dude is... <laughs> He's 50% titty. <laughs> He's got some real hooters. <laughs> uh, 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 my, my own laughing is now making me... <laughs> <admit I> can. <laughs> well, come say hi. Who's 50% titty? <laughs> We're talking about uh, Bolo Young from the movie. Oh, He's man. Got those, he's got those real chugs. And and Mac was just laughing because he 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 loves talking about it. That's all we talk about these days. Titties. Yeah, unfortunately, <laughs> sorry. It's okay, me too. What else is there? What else is there? Yay. Hey, are those implants? <laughs> no, he flexes them. I mean, you can flex implants. Uh, the way he makes these dance, these oh, okay. these, <laughs> these puppies are real. All right, these sweater puppies. Yeah. that's a that's a my my band name. My a band I want to have. That's a pretty good band right? name. Right, sweater of fact. puppies. The sweater puppies. Yeah. And then I want a t-shirt that has like little puppies coming out of a tank top. Yeah. Like their noses are the nipples. Yes. <laughs> oh my God. Okay. 
Love what you, are David. we doing? Love you, bye. <laughs> Good Christ. He's got he's got some real honey baked tutors, that's for sure. He's got some yam yams. <laughs> Uh, 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 we gotta stop. Uh, I need to be able to breathe <laughs> at some point. I, I don't know. Where, where, where the fuck are we on this show? Ro- uh, Roper versus right. Bull. Fight. <laughs> <laughs> oh, We're such children. This I is know. what broke us. 53 episodes. I know. But David, this fight, you think just based on titties alone. That, Where are you going? That Bolo would win, but Roper wins. What an upset. Yes, uh, Roper wins because he fights dirty. He's like, what am I going to do? Fight clean against Bolo? So at one point, Bolo has Roper on the ground. So Roper grabs a hold of Bolo's leg and starts biting it. And while I'm watching this movie, I said out loud, keep going. I wanted to see Roper eat Bolo. If, that, if this movie could be anything gonzo, I wanted to see him just devour Bolo. But yeah, he beats him. At one point, Bolo's had enough. So he comes charging and Roper is on the ground. He punches up, punches Bolo square in the nuts. I wanted more nut shots in this movie. That's going to be a quick punch up. Like, there's no fighting dirty in this uh, winner take all tournament. More nut shots, please. Yeah, and kudos also to Bolo Young, to borrow a phrase from wrestling, for putting over Roper or putting over John Saxon. You know, you think about people like The Rock who, you know, contractually, he cannot be punched more times than he punches, right? Like isn't Hobbs and Shaw or something like that when they fight one of those Fast and Furious movies, they they punch each other the exact same number of times. And that's like a, a requirement for The Rock to be in the movie. Because look, obviously, Bolo Young could beat the shit out of John Saxon. He, he's got to be able to. He's just, he's like twice the size. And so the fact that he, you know, helps sell the fact that Roper is a competent martial artist here, or John Saxon, it was great. Because, yeah, I mean, Bolo Young, he's, he's awesome. Yeah, putting over is a great way to put it. Up until this point, I was very happy with John Saxon's performance in it. I thought he fit the movie well. Uh, he does kind of look like one of the Thunderbirds, uh, so that does take you out of it. But for <laughs> Bolo Young to put him over was really impressive. No, it, it was very effective. So something about John Saxon, too. Is did he remind you of any other celebrity or any other actor? Oh boy, he did. There was a look to him. I I would know it if I heard it. If somebody would say, like, do you think he looked like this? I would probably agree. Like, you know, there was a moment when he's walking through Han's lair, and that's where I noticed that he kind of looked like a Thunderbird because he had blush on his cheeks. It looked like he almost had eye makeup, like he had eyeliner. So he was a very pretty man, but I I couldn't quite place it. Do you do you have a thought on that? Well, my feral wife said that. He looked a little bit like Zac Efron, specifically maybe Iron Claw era Zac Efron. But to me, he kind of looked like Sean Connery, like the Sean Connery from those first, you know, four James Bond movies. And so, especially like in this spy movie on, a, on an island, it really helped to emphasize this, the spy angle of this movie, the fact that there was a Connery-esque person there. I don't know if anyone else got that vibe, but that's what I got. But um, Han is not happy that Bolo goes down. So who does he order to fight? Roper and Lee, everybody. Yeah, Han is is fed up with Lee and Roper. You know, they take out Bolo. So Han just starts sending his students, you know, the ones in the lazy fight school, starts sending them out like three at a time. You, 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 go, go, go. And then Roper and, and Lee beat them up. So Han sends three more. Okay, you this time, you and you and you. Hey man, send them all. Like, is there going to be one guy at the end who was like, well, you didn't call me, so uh, I stayed out of it. I didn't want to get on your bad side, Han. No, send them all. 
but it does end up being everybody versus Lee and Roper. And then we get a special appearance by some other people, Mac. Who do, who do we see later on in this fight? Yeah, the movie remembers that Mei Ling is in the movie and she goes down to the drunk tank and releases all of the prisoners. Out come the drunks. Oh my goodness, David. It's everyone versus everyone. Fight. And sure enough, it's everyone versus everyone. And Lee here is making quick work of everyone he comes across. But look, we know Lee's a badass. We know Bruce Lee's a badass. But every time Lee disposes of someone, kicking him in the face or what have you, he stops for a second to kind of, you know, pose or take in the fact that he just kicked the shit out of somebody. And at this moment, dude, you're in a fucking prison riot. This is a brawl. We get it. You're awesome. Stop posing. I didn't mind it so much. I do I do get where you're coming from because he is such the perfect weapon that it's almost effortless to him. In fact, I do want to give credit to this sequence. It's impressive choreography here in the sense that Bruce Lee knows where his partner is going to be at all times. Like he has a number of the students attacking him from behind, but Lee is able to, you know, throw a fist back or throw an elbow back and and sort of anticipate them being there. I thought this was great, but yeah, you do get a lot of, you know, kind of splash page moments with Bruce Lee where he's just the lone man standing among a pile of bodies. Yeah, I, I could have gone for a little more humility or a little more struggle, but then you don't get this Bruce Lee showcase. You're definitely right about that. The choreography here doesn't show its seams, right? We cannot see the strings that are controlling the puppets. All we see is an awesome fight that's happening on screen. But Han, he needs to take it up a notch. Get out of here, regular metal hand. It's time for a wacky hand. And what a wacky hand it is. He takes off his his day-to-day operations hand and puts on a metal claw. It's like a Wolverine kind of claw. It's three prongs. But Mac, there's also a little bit of fur on the top of it. I don't know if this is decoration, if he stole this hand from maybe a robot badger at some point or something. But Mac, why? Why the fur on this claw? I don't know, David. And I've had that same similar question with a lot of supervillains, right? For example, Thanos. He is wearing a suit of armor in the Marvel Cinematic Universe movies. How about a scene where he picks out his armor? Because obviously some thought went into it. It was definitely custom made. You know, is he like, oh, no, I I want shoulder pads that kind of flare off here. That'd be an awesome, like, not uh, post-credit scene, but maybe pre-opening credit scene. Just a real quick shot of him. Just looking at some hands, he's like, this one, add some fur. Boom, Warner Brothers presents. I want to see him get sold, those claws. I want to see like a salesman coming on from a boat from the mainland. He's got a big suitcase full of the latest models. And he's like, well, what about this one, Han? You know, for the next time you're eating melon or something. He's like, oh, a little melon ball or something. Like, yeah, I'd like to see him pick them out. Not evil enough. He finds a young villager (laughs) who's good at making hands. And he wants him to practice. So he cuts off the hand of his father. So the villager gets to practice on the... The stump of his own dad. That's fucked up. Holy, that's fucked up. But Mac, Han splits. And so Lee follows Han through Han's cherished museum of hands and into an inexplicable room of mirrors for one final showdown. Lee remembers what his Obi-Wan told him earlier in the movie and uses that knowledge to defeat Han. In other news, the Han Invitational has been suspended indefinitely. Oh, you better believe it's Lee versus Han. So even though Han has the claw hand now, And he does manage to slice Lee, you know, very noticeably. Like, I think he's got a scratch on uh, each cheek and one on his chest. Lee does not give a shit. In fact, I think he doesn't lick the blood from his his, uh, tummy wound. His his belly wound. Yeah, he licks it. And you're like, oh, man, you're a badass. But we already know you're a badass. We've been watching this whole movie. I still love this fight, though, because at one moment, we do get a little bit of slow motion here. And we see Lee kick on 
And just with his foot, paintbrush on his face. Just, <laughs> you get that slow motion of him just like trying to touch every part of his heel across all of Han's cheek, and I love it. Yeah. This is a very effective fight, especially when you consider how we were able to establish Han as a formidable foe when he beat up Williams. You know, he's not necessarily the most technically proficient fighter, but he does have the edge, and and, and that edge is going to be the claw. At one point in the fight, Han loses his fur claw and then pulls out, I guess, his special Cutco brand claw where it's just three knife blades. And this is maybe one of the dumbest claws I've ever seen in the history of seeing claws. It's this block, and it's got knives sticking out of it. I kind of wish this wasn't the final claw we saw. But also, I do take umbrage with Han's fighting style, because when your final claw is three knives, don't slash, stab. Like, how quickly would this fight have been over if Han had just got him right in the gut just one time instead of just swiping at him? Yeah, because the advantage here is that Han now has a uh, longer reach than Lee, but he does not use it to his advantage. It really is like a Wolverine claw if Wolverine didn't have a hand but still had a claw. Mm-hmm. Yeah. At some point, Lee does kind of a step back, and I don't know how to describe it. He's got his pinky and thumb out on both hands, and it's a move that I recognize because I saw Neo do it in The Matrix after they downloaded Kung Fu into his brain. I did not know that that move was a specific callback to this movie. Fun fact. <laughs> yeah, that was terrific. You know, because it's also, it's the swagger with which he does it. It, it really is just like, uh, you know, you could tell that Lee is enjoying the fight. Like, it's not a matter of life and death for him. It's almost like his teachings won't allow him to view fighting in that way as a matter of, you know, as a matter of life and death. It really is just a competition. You're, maybe you're not fighting an opponent. Maybe it's, you know, you're competing against yourself to improve your skill. But the fact that Lee is so cavalier about this final fight, about this winner-take-all fight, it's really it's really excellent. I enjoyed it a lot. And Han, uh, evading a beatdown, escapes into this other room right next door. And the room is a Hall of Mirrors. Now, David, I've seen these kind of Hall of Mirrors before where it's like, oh, is that, a, is that the bad guy about to shoot me? Or is that just a reflection? What's happening? So I do not know if this is the very first Hall of Mirrors fight scene, but I'm going to assume it is. I just I cannot remember an earlier one. If you, a listener, can think of a, an earlier instance of sort of a mirrored fight, then please let me know. But David, you mentioned earlier that this movie is not visually spectacular, right? Like the visual direction of this movie, you know, it, it does feature an awesome person like Bruce Lee, but it's kind of workmanlike. This mirror set piece is almost like more than this movie deserves. Like it's too good in my mind. It's like somehow this movie struck gold again. I agree. I, I don't quite know how to put it. So I'm just, you know, maybe you'll help me out here, but there's an artistry to how it's presented because it's not shot in a way that it's trying to hide the camera or it's trying to trick the audience. It really is just a stylized shot. Like, and, and by that, I mean, you know, you'll get a, a kind of a cascade of mirrors where if Bruce Lee steps in front of one, he's reflected on a dozen other mirrors you know, in, in just segments. It's almost like he's broken up into pieces. I'm, I'm doing a terrible job of describing it, but there is an artistry to it. It's really impressive, especially for 1973, especially for something as low budget and, you know, not quite as showy as a motion picture might be. No, I really did appreciate this one. Yeah, no, you're right. There's a couple shots in it where for half a second, you're like, oh, is that Lee or is that just a reflection of Lee? But then there are some shots where you just get an image of Lee kind of, I don't know, like vivisected or something like that and just mm. kind of split out or, or, or arrayed and like an array of Lees. And all it is is just a very cool looking, you know, very, uh, like you said, you know, visually pretty shot. It's pretty cool. But then 
when Lee is uh, has a moment to himself, he remembers something his Shaolin abbot said. And at the time, it was very much like a metaphor, like, to defeat your enemy, smash the image of your enemy that he has. Whereas now the metaphor turns out to be a very literal, like, metaphorically speaking, break a bunch of mirrors, Lee, whatever that means. And so Lee starts smashing the mirrors and enables him to find Han. And he kicks Han into a spear that just happened to be sticking out from a mirror. And so Han is dead, right? That's right. And and going back a little bit when we were talking at the top of the show about, you know, this movie did a really good job of making it for the audience. So yeah, this is very hit you on the head kind of wisdom. But I think it is also sort of intro to wisdom for a lot of moviegoers where, you know, you hear the the teachings at the very beginning and then you see it literally applying to the end of the movie. I did kind of groan a little bit or maybe roll my eyes in, in a sense, but uh, can't argue with results, Teach. This was an exceptional ending to this movie. So we cut back to the surface of Kung Fu Island and we see the aftermath of the brawl. The drunks, I guess they're the good guys, have won. There's only a few uh, remaining, you know, soldiers or students or whatever, uh, some Hans goons. And the the guys in black are just kind of shoving them around. Basically like, ah, I'm going to kill you. Nope, he's going to kill you. One of us <laughs> is going to kill you. And we see Roper. He's kind of just dusting himself off. And Roper looks over and he sees Tanya, a lady who he seemed to definitely have a connection with. She's dead, David. He sees her body. He doesn't even go over to it. He's just like, that's a shame. So that's kind of it's a grim nonchalant end to Tanya kind of uh kind of a weird tone because seconds later Roper sees Lee and he's like hey thumbs up we did it and some funky AT <laughs> music plays as the British finally show up uh, I think some helicopters are coming so he's like uh Roper got over Tanya real quick Roper got over Tanya real quick but yes you're absolutely right the, the helicopters are coming the British have answered the SOS call so they're coming to the island And the movie ends there, but I wanted the movie to go on just a few minutes more, at least until the helicopters land and the agents get out and go, what the fuck happened here? Because I think for all intents and purposes, they were expecting to arrest Han, take him back to the mainland, put him up on charges. Maybe there's a trial. They were not expecting scores of people to be dead. Uh, so I would have liked to have seen the reaction from the agents. Yeah, it wasn't like SOS, like, dee, 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 I have evidence, dee, 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 by the way giant kung fu mega fight (laughs) but even though we never once saw an actual dragon in this movie david somehow this is the end of enter the dragon all right david how many mark out moments how many moms did you have i had three mark out moments and a big smile on my face the entire time how about you man? i had four david is this someone's favorite movie Hell yes, it is. This is one of those generational action movies. This is Die Hard. This is The Matrix. This is the movie of the 70s, if I can provide a pull quote for the next box of this movie. But absolutely. Yeah, the fact that, you know, this was a movie that was tied to Lee's death. He died at the very young age of 32. I think only cemented it as a milestone movie in a lot of people's lives. All right, David, time for some punch-ups. We're the Ultimate Script Doctors. Everybody knows that. How would you fix this movie, David? How would you punch it up? I've got a few. My first one I've already mentioned. I would like more of a bigger scale with a lot of these fights. You know, I think there's an opportunity to grand them up a little bit. You know, you've got the entire school versus the entire prison. It's well done. But, you know, if you could just if you could just hit that extra gear, a gear that doesn't exist back in 1973, but like more of a Raid 2 kind of gear, like that prison yard fight where it's brutality and it's very claustrophobic and it's very visceral. I, I would have liked something like that. But this this movie is what it is. It was it was a triumph for 1973. A couple of smaller punch-ups. 
One, when Lee and Roper have killed Bolo and they're getting ready to fight the rest of the school, I wish there had been a moment where Roper and Lee kind of butt up back to back and have a, a buddy kill line. Like, you ready to do this, pal? You bet I am. Because the one thing that this movie is lacking, I suppose, is a bond between Lee and Williams and Roper. Williams and Roper have that bond between each other because they were in the service together. But Lee is really just Roper's gambling buddy. So they're never really adversaries. They're never really, you know, uh, frenemies or anything like that. They just always have a mutual respect for each other. I would have liked a line to really sell it like, it's you and me, pal. Let's do this. Oh, yeah. Especially like a gambling related line like, hey, Roper, you know, uh, would you bet on us? And Roper's like, I'm all in. And then, you know, out, out come the fists. Absolutely. Yes. Which brings me to my third punch up. I do have two suggestions for a couple of runners that would have uh, brightened up this movie a little bit. One, when we see Roper for the first time, when we see John Saxon, he has so much luggage. He, you know, it's, it's a joke where it's like, you know, always travel in style or something like that. I would have liked to have seen him slowly lose that luggage throughout the movie. Like his gambling debts get the best of him. So he's down, you know, he had seven bags and now he's got six or, you know, well, I had to sell off two more of those bags. I thought that would have been fun to watch his funds deplete. But that also brings me to another runner where we have the Mantis fight on the boat. We have Lee and Roper establishing their relationship as fellow gamblers, you know, as betters against each other. And there is even a callback to it uh, in the Dirt Mall where Roper's like, you got to give me a chance to, to win that money back. What if Roper keeps trying to win his money back and keeps losing at every turn? What if it's just obvious stuff like, oh, who can eat the most popcorn the fastest? Let's go. You know, just anything. But like, I want to see Roper's funds again deplete. To the point where he's almost desperate on this island where he was looking to get away from from that on the mainland. Those are just a few punch-ups in an otherwise excellent movie. Yeah, you know, I totally forgot about that. But you're right, at the beginning of the movie, they make a point of showing how much luggage Roper is bringing. Which at the time I was thinking, oh man, look at this uh, fancy dude's got to bring all this luggage. But now thinking about it, he is trying to escape some loan sharks that are closing in on him, we assume. Or whoever he owes his gambling debts to. So maybe that luggage was just everything he owns. Like, I can't go back to my place. <laughs> so you know what? Whatever I can carry and whatever I can carry in 18 designer suitcases. On my main punch up, fix the tone of those darker scenes. We got to have some kind of visual shift because that for the, you know, dark shit that's happening on screen. Another punch up. And again, this is a kind of picky on my part. But let's spend five more minutes. Not a whole, not a whole extra reel of the film. Just five more minutes grounding this tournament, setting up the tournament part of it. Like David Bloodsport, right? That movie with Jean-Claude Van Damme and also Bolo Jung. We get scenes where the other people are fighting in the tournament. We get to see these other fighters. They'll have like different fighting styles that kind of makes them stand out. This tournament just feels like four fights and maybe six people are in it. There's never a sense that this is a giant tournament. So just, yeah, five more minutes fleshing that out. And also, Dave, my last punch up, Mei Ling versus... Han's daughter squad, his squad of uh, daughters who are all assassins. I almost feel like this was a deleted scene that's lying around somewhere because Mei Ling does not have a lot to do in this movie. We're introduced to Han's daughters who are all amazing assassins, but they never do anything. It's like they never come into play and kill people. And Mei Ling does not have really anything to do in this uh, movie. It's the 1970s. So we're, so of course, women can only fight women in the 70s. But look, we have two forces here. Make them fight. Where, where the fuck was this? Yeah, for a movie that had a lot of fights and a lot of action, there were still pockets throughout the movie where you could have fit more action. 
And that would have been perfect. I thought that would have wowed a lot of people. Yeah, maybe 30 seconds in the final island brawl would have would have done it for me. Also, David, maybe have a dragon in the movie. All right, David, please join me uh, in going to the Punch Mountain video store. As you know, this is an all-action movie video store with each shelf representing a different subcategory of action. Dave, we have three copies of Into the Dragon. We splurged. Where would you stock these copies? What categories? Okay, my first one is going in martial arts action. Surely we have some other copies there. Uh, Probably the Raid 2, I forget. But this is a martial arts classic. It is almost, like we said, an intro to martial arts. So I think it belongs on a section like that. Uh, Second section I would put in 70s action. Finally, we have a movie that feels like an honest-to-goodness action movie, of course. I do want it to represent the decade of the 70s. My third copy is... I'll put this question to you, Mac. Bruce Lee is an undeniable star. This is his signature movie. He doesn't quite have a large filmography. I don't, I'm not terribly familiar with the other movies he made or was cobbled together. Do you think we should have a Bruce Lee section or what would a Bruce Lee section look like? I think he starred in five movies. I may be confused. The number may be completely wrong. But yeah, I think if he has at least three, which I think he does, that definitely deserves a Bruce Lee section. Cool. Yeah, it would it would feel incomplete without him, to be perfectly honest. So I would not mind that one bit. Again, I could easily look up that number, but I refuse to. It's my toxic trait. (laughs) The only category, if we had an extra copy, unfortunately, we don't. I'd put this on the tournament shelf because just like Bloodsport, this is another movie where it kind of takes place around a fighting tournament. I could think of at least one more, The Quest, but that's also a Jean-Claude Van Damme movie. So there's got to be other movies out there. That's where I'd stock. Okay, David, it's time to reveal the position of Into the Dragon on Punch and Mountain itself, the definitive ranking of action movies. And just as a reminder, at the summit currently, it is Terminator 2 Judgment Day, Raid 2, The Matrix, Jurassic Park, and Hard Boiled. Die Hard is one through six. And all the way at the bottom in the dinghy that's being dragged by the boat on the way to (laughs) Martial Arts Island at number 54, it is Chappie. Before we learn the mountains ultimate ranking. David, where would you rank this movie? I think the only thing stopping Enter the Dragon from being at the top of the mountain are the 20 or so other movies we put in front of it. And by that, I mean, there is nothing wrong with this movie. It is a superb action movie. It is a superb motion picture. I think it might suffer a little bit just from the era in which it came out, where, you know, the action sequences can come off a little pedestrian. They can come off a little flat, maybe. But for that argument, I would say the counterpoint to that argument is look at this from a historical perspective. Look at this as the start of a new era of movies. You know, this is such a part of our lives. This is such a part of the fabric of pop culture that it's hard to deny its influence. You know, I I think the world of this movie, I would like to see it very high on the mountain. I'm not quite sure, but I'm just glad to have it there. How about you, Mac? Yeah, David, I think you're right. I think for a while, this might've been the number one movie. I think, you know, after coming out in 1973, Maybe this had uh, the belt. Maybe it had a very long run. However, this is not the ranking of the most influential action movies of all time. It's a ranking of the best. And as you've said on a number of occasions, we make them good now. So yeah, I think it is going to chart high, but, you know, probably not at the top. Oh my goodness, that is the sound of the rocks falling off the face of the mountain. The golden letters are shining out, revealing the position of Into the Dragon. And it is, oh wow, number 10, cracking the top 10, a mountain slayer. Uh, Number eight, Atomic Blonde. Number nine, Speed. Ten, Into the Dragon. Eleven, Star Wars Episode Eight, The Last Jedi. And number 12, Prey. I laugh, but look, listen to the episode if you have a problem with that ranking being so high. (laughs) We do the work. We do the work. 
Yeah. I'm very glad that this is in the top 10. That's just, that's fitting. I don't know how long it's going to last. You know, it's right there on the edge. It could easily get bumped out by something else. But man, I do want to give this movie credit. To paraphrase Shaquille O'Neal, I owe you an apology. I was not familiar with your game. Uh, This is a solid movie. I recommend it to everybody. Oh, David, do you know what that sound is? Is it the dragon that we've been waiting for? (laughs) No, David. And I believe it's a horn calling us to action. We talk a lot about fictional action heroes, but we also want to talk about real heroes taking action for vulnerable, underserved, or underrepresented communities. This month, we're supporting UNICEF. UNICEF, aka the United Nations International Children's Emergency Fund, helps save and protect child victims of war and violence through evidence-based interventions and response services in more than 140 countries. UNICEF is working alongside partners to meet the urgent needs of children impacted by wars in Gaza, Sudan, Syria, Ukraine, and Yemen. After each episode this month, Punch Mountain will be making a small donation to UNICEF USA. For more information on UNICEF or to donate directly to them, visit unicef.org. UNICEF is spelled U-N-I-C-E-F. And that'll do it for another edition of Punch Mountain. Folks, don't forget to add us on social media. We're on Instagram at Punch Mountain or drop us a line at punchmountain at gmail.com. You can also join us on Discord. The link is in our link tree. MacBlakeComedy.com is your source for all things Mac. In two weeks, we will be back with another movie, this time from 2020, directed by Paul W.S. Anderson and starring Mila Jovovich. We're doing Monster Hunter. I'm excited. We will see you in two weeks. Bye. Bye.